Well, if you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Amos in chapter 7. Word of God, open, let's pray. Father in heaven, come to your presence tonight, O God, to open your word and to apply it to our hearts. We pray, Father, that you would draw near to us. Come, O God, and help us to perceive that The word preached in the church is not the word of the minister, it's not the word of the elders, not the word of the people, but it's the word of God. Grant, O God, that as long as the sun shines, this church will be based upon and gripped by the authority of Scripture proclaimed from the pulpit as the very word of God. Your word is pure, O Lord, like silver refined in a furnace upon the earth, refined seven times. You, O Lord, will keep it for this generation and forever. We offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Amos 7.10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you. In the midst of the house of Israel, the land is not able to bear all his words. For this Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from this land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel. For it's the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman, the dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land." Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. In the 19th century, um, Protestant missionaries brought the gospel to the land of Armenia, and that's the land, okay? Armenia is the land. Armenians are the 
theological people, and there's nothing to do with one another, although I'm quite sure there are some Armenians in Armenia, and Armenia, no, some Armenians in Armenia, anyway. But Armenia is a country, right, and um, the gospel was brought by Protestant missionaries there, and there was great revival in kind of a dead Protestant church there in uh, Armenia. And at that time, much of Armenia was under a Turkish Muslim government, and it was as is the case in Muslim lands, converting from, from Islam to Protestantism or Christianity was a, a crime punishable by death and is a crime punishable by death. But this law was suddenly lifted during the revival in 1856, and complete religious liberty was granted to the Armenian Christians. And scores of Muslims took opportunity during that time to become Christians. But that opportunity was short-lived. Eight years later, in 1864, the Turkish government began rounding up and sentencing um, Muslim converts to Christianity to death. Over two years, it's estimated they killed over 100,000 Christians. But that wasn't enough. In the spring of 1896, the government resolved to kill every Christian within the Armenian borders. Lawyers, doctors, clergymen, intellectuals especially, were rounded up and charged with subversion. Many had their heads placed in vices which were tightened until they collapsed. As many as 600,000 Christians were slaughtered on that day of April the 24th, 1896. One Christian who escaped was a girl, 18 years of age. She stumbled into an American camp, obviously in great pain. A nurse asked her, are you okay? Are you in pain? She answered, no, but I have learned the meaning of the cross. The nurse thought she had lost her mind and took her to the, to the uh, sick bay and began to dress her wounds. And pulling down one of the garments the girl was wearing, the nurse exposed a bare shoulder, and there, burned deeply into her flesh, was the figure of a cross. She said, the girl said, I was caught by the Muslims and taken, and every day they asked me, Muhammad or Christ? And I responded, Christ, always Christ. And each day I said that, they burned a part of the cross into my arm until the whole cross was etched into my skin. That was for six days. On the seventh day, they said, we come back tomorrow. If you answer Christ, tomorrow you die. And in God's mercy, she heard that there's an American camp nearby, I think a Red Cross camp, and she ran, managed to escape her captors and ran to uh, the Americans. She said, this is how I learned the meaning of the cross. Have you learned the meaning of the cross? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. But in our passage this evening, we see Amos learning for himself the meaning of the cross. This priest, Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, his name, Amaziah, is actually built in the Hebrew for Yahweh. 
the, the, the ayah at the end is a kind of a reference to Jehovah. But he's the priest of Bethel, one of these pagan shrines. Um, you remember Israel in the United Kingdom ran from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. But when the kingdom divided in the 10th century after Rehoboam's sin, the northern ten tribes of Israel ran from Dan in the north to Bethel in the south. And when Jeroboam faced the temptation or the fear of Israel going down to the yearly priests, uh, to the yearly feasts in Jerusalem, because he had no temple, he had no priesthood. Remember, Jeroboam the first committed two great sins. The first was he um, uh, created a new priesthood, and the second was he made two new shrines in Dan and in Bethel, where he put a golden calf, two golden calves. Uh, which became a substitute deity. He called them Jehovah, but they were, of course, um, idols. So Amaziah is one of this new uh, pagan priesthood appointed by Jeroboam I. Now, the Jeroboam in this passage is Jeroboam II, a later king, and no immediate relation to Jeroboam I. So Amaziah, this priest, comes to Amos, and as is often the case, he misrepresents um, Amos' ministry at every level. He, first of all, misrepresents the aim of Amos' ministry. He comes to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, and says to him, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The aim of Amos' ministry, it's conspiracy. Amos has got a personal vendetta against you, the king. Bob File says, personalizing a general word is a common tactic of those who wish to discredit it. How many people in the church, how many um, rebels against God have taken up accusations that the preacher has got a personal vendetta against me? That's what, that's what Amaziah is trying to do. He's trying to get Jeroboam to regard Amos as his enemy. Whereas, of course, Amos is simply pointing out that Jeroboam II is the enemy of God. But Amaziah is twisting that, personalizing it, making it a vendetta between Amos and Jeroboam, a power struggle, you might say, between the church and the state. Bob File continues, Amos is the messenger who brings the word. It does not originate with him. The Amaziahs of this world will consistently refuse to acknowledge that. They will attack the messenger rather than the divine source of the message, the aim of Amos' ministry. And so, you need to be watching for that. Um, it's, it, it's very difficult, especially my elders, it's, it's, when, when the Word of God is attacked from the pulpit, whether it's an attack that comes against me or against Kyle or other ministers here, and by God's grace that has not happened yet, you've got to realize people are not going to come up and attack our exegesis. They're not going to come up and attack the exegesis of a certain Greek verb or noun or Hebrew or whatever. That's not where they'll come, because that's where we're strong. They'll come and attack our aim and our motivations, and they'll say that we have a vendetta against them or some and sometimes that can be true, I don't think in my ministry, but it can, people can come and say, you, you've got a, a beef with me, and you're after me. And uh, it's an old tactic that the devil uses. We must be aware for it, because the devil loves to undermine and attack 
the, the ministry of the gospel. And Amos here, his, his aim is misrepresented. Then secondly, Amaziah misrepresents the effects of Amos's ministry. He says, the land is not able to bear all his words. Some of his words are fine, but a lot of his words are overwhelming. We can't bear them. They crush us. And I remember in a previous church, my first ministry, um, there was a, a, a lady and a group of ladies rose up in the congregation and made it their business to attack my ministry. And this is what they said. They said, we can't bear your preaching. It's, it's overwhelming. It's crushing us. And this lady had her teenage children, one after another, come into the room in front of her husband. She was leading the proceedings, though, and, and have her children tell me that they couldn't bear. My, my preaching was crushing them. And it was an overwhelming moment. And this caused great um, consternation among my elders, and they came and said to me, um, you know, people don't like your preaching. And I would say to them, that's never the question. The question is never, do people like my preaching? The question is, is it true? The question is never, can they bear it? The question is, must they hear it? And, if, and you know, so please help me. If you can show me how my preaching is misapplying or mis. Um, explaining the Word of God, then I will change it, and I will utter a public apology, and I will change it. But if you can't show me how what I am saying is, is misrepresents the Word of God, as Luther famously said, here I stand, I can do no other. The effect of Amos' ministry. Similarly, Amaziah moves on to attack and misrepresent the jurisdiction of Amos's ministry. Amaziah leaves Jeroboam's presence in verse 12 and heads down to Amos himself, and he mocks Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it's the king's sanctuary and it's a temple of the kingdom. Now, that's an interesting Statement, you remember Amos is kind of engaged in cross-cultural ministry. He's a southern boy up in Yankeedom. Um, and there's tension north and south. One of my friends in the south of America said to me, he was 22 years old before he learned that dang, Yankee was two words. Uh, there's tension here north and south, and there's tension there in the north and the south. These people are kind of war with one another almost. And, and, and Amos is called, he's a southern boy from Judah, Tekoa in the south, and he sent up north to preach. And it'd be like um, 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 the black preacher who is now ministering in Uganda, famous American preacher, Vodibakum, thank you. My, my name center is crashing again. Vodibakum, like Vodibakum going and preaching to the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> you know, his ministry is not going to go down very well, right? Um, this great preacher, and that's essentially what Amaziah is saying. Go back to Judah, your home country. They'll be glad to hear you. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary. It's where the king's authority is. It's it's a temple of his kingdom. 
jurisdiction. And we see that same attitude today in the secular state. R.C. Sproul says, according to secularism, God has no authority over the state. He is relegated to a ghetto prince and rules over the lives of those who let him, the lives of those who let him, and over the church, but he has no authority over the state. This is a variety of henotheism, the idea that gods are geographic deities with geographic boundaries to their kingdoms. Outside his territorial domain, therefore, God can be allowed to have no authority. That's what henotheism teaches. By this kind of illogic, the secularist demands that the things of God must not penetrate public education, government, industry, or the law court. It's the madness of our day. You keep your religion, you know, what you do, we speak no longer freedom of religion, but the, the freedom of worship. And that's a very important word change. When the progressives change a word, it's always very significant. Religion's what you do everywhere. It's how you, what happens when you answer and live out the questions, life's ultimate questions. Where'd the world come from? Where's the world going? What's the world about? Why is the world so messed up? How can the world be fixed? How do I live tomorrow? Those are the big questions, right? And we live those questions out, and we have our religion, which is one of the reasons why the Supreme Court in 1967, I think, um, declared secularism a religion because it was a belief system that governs all of life. Um, but worship's different. Worship's what you do in here, in this room. So freedom of religion is what you do everywhere as you live out the answer to life's ultimate questions. Freedom of worship is what you do in the confines of this room. And the progressive want to take away freedom of religion, which has jurisdiction everywhere, and replace it with jur- freedom of worship, which is what happens in this room and nowhere else. And that's very significant. And it's, it's an age-old tactic of the devil. It's happening here. Um, they're, they're basically reducing Amos's preaching to cultural relativism. It's what, it's what you believe down in the south, you, you muck-spreaders, you knuckle-draggers, you yokels in the south, but we're more sophisticated than that. We're the king's sanctuary up here, and your words of no binding authority up here. So he misrepresents and attacks Amos's ministry, the aim of it, his effect, the effect of his ministry, it's unbearable, and the jurisdiction of Amos's ministry. And then, fourthly, he goes after the motivations of Amos's heart. He says, fundamentally, Amos, your ministry is self-centered and self-serving. Self-centered, he says um, in verse 12, O seer, literally, he says, go flee away for yourself, for your own advantage, you might say, to the land of Judah. Save yourself. He's, he's, he's saying that Amos has got no higher motivation than self-preservation. as if there was no higher motive for him than to save his own neck. And then he doubles down and accuses Amos of self-serving. Go eat your bread there and prophesy there. That's what you're really after, Amos, isn't it? Mula, food, the good life. And ministers, we must do all that we can to protect ourselves from this easy attack. But it's there as one of the devil's famous attack. Attack the man and his message and his ministry. And lastly, um, Amos or Amaziah attacks the substance of Amos's ministry. In verse 16, Amos is quoting Amaziah, "'You who say, do not prophesy against Israel,' 
and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Your preaching's too negative, Amos. This is the demand that preaching should always be uplifting, encouraging, and positive. It should make you feel good. It's, the, it's what Paul speaks about in 2 Timothy um, 4. Turn there a second. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering. If you preach the truth, you can expect it, Paul saying, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In one sense, men, we should not wonder that the preaching of this church will be attacked. If anything, elders, we should wonder why it hasn't been attacked more already. But people want ear-tickling ministry, and you're preaching against the church. As a famous Old Testament professor, Walt Kaiser, I heard him preach a number of years ago, and he said he was asked to go and speak to the synagogue in some American city up north, but he was at, not the synagogue, the seminary for rabbis, rabbinical seminary, whatever you call that. And they asked him to preach on, the, on the, is the New Testament anti-Semitic? And he said, I'll do that on one condition. I give you two lectures, but the first lecture is free. And he said, sure. We would love a second lecture. He said, my, my first lecture will be entitled, Is the Old Testament Anti-Semitic? Because the prophetic literature is universally a call from a lawsuit from God against Israel, calling them back from their rebellion, back from their godlessness toward God in repentance. And Amos has no, no um, Amaziah has no room in his mindset for preaching that comes as a confrontation from God against a people embracing their sin. And that's one of the distinguishing marks, I fear, of, of too much preaching in our day. It, it's designed to say peace where there is no peace. It's designed to encourage people who that God loves them when these people are in locked in deliberate rebellion against the Lord. And yes, there's a call of grace to such a people, but that call is often, like the words of Jesus, 
remember Lot's wife. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Many will say, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many wonders in your name? I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, and so forth and so on. The New Testament is full of warnings of the judgment of God against the people of God. How does Amos respond? Well, he's no elders around him to defend him. He must stand up and defend himself. What's he say? Well, first of all, he defends the authority of his ministry, or the, sorry, the origin of his ministry. He says, I was no prophet, verse 14, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman, a dresser of sycamore fig trees. What he's saying is that I did not make myself a prophet. I didn't apply for the job. I wasn't born into it. My dad wasn't a prophet. It's not part of who I am or what I do. I'm a, I'm a farmer. God made me a prophet, verse 15, but the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. It echoes Amaziah. Amaziah says, go and flee. And Amos says, I can't, because God has said to me, go and preach. And God has said to me, go and preach to my people Israel. You may have rejected God, and you certainly have rejected me, but Amos says, God hasn't rejected you. He still regards you as His people. The covenant binds you to Himself. Children here in this church, His covenant children, you may walk away from God, but you can't walk away from the covenant. Wherever you go, whatever you do, you will always belong to God. You will always be His. As Hebrews 10 says, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hand of the living God, and one day you will, if you do not repent and fall into His mercy, you will die and fall into His judgment. And the writer to the Hebrews quotes the Old Testament, for the Lord will judge His people. You'll not be like Brad Pitt and, and um, the movie stars. You'll not be like Hillary Clinton and, and Biden. You'll be judged as pagans and damned as pagans. But you, covenant children, you'll be judged as a child of the covenant who spurned the covenant and walked away from the grace, walked away from the prayers of your parents, walked away from the warnings of your father, walked away from the instruction of your mother, walked away from the sermons of your pastor, walked away from the shepherding of your elders. The madness of it. But you can walk away from it, but you can't escape from it. You are a child of the covenant. It's a very sober thing. And Amos comes, and he speaks of the origin of his ministry. And then he defends the essence of his ministry. 
The Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, because of who God is, and because of what God has done, God has taken me, and He's given me a word, who can but prophesy, He said earlier in the book. Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. That's the essence of Amos' ministry. He's a word from God, a word about God, a word for the people of God, and he preaches it. And that's, that is the acid test of a called Christian ministry, that God has given you a word. It's not enough having the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God, but there's this sense that as you read the Bible, God has given you a message, not just for yourself and for your family, but a message for the people. It's like fire in your burn bones, and you feel compelled to preach it. And too often as I listen to men coming forward to the Candidates and Examinations Committee, as they talk about their call to ministry, it seems to them that it was a good idea to go into the ministry. Maybe their granny thought they should go and preach, or their mummy thought they should go and preach, or they thought they should go and preach. But the great question, the great conviction that I hear with, very rarely do I hear a man say, I feel compelled by God Almighty to preach His Word. Now, once you feel that, the question is, does the church agree with you? That's not unimportant. It's very important. But it's got to begin there, this sense that God has spoken and I must speak. It's the essence of a preaching and prophetic ministry to be given the Word of God by the God of the Word and to speak that Word to the people of the God. So he defends the authority of his ministry and he defends the essence of his ministry, the Word of the Lord. It's one of the things that marked out Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' ministry. And there was a skeptical reporter who went to hear Lloyd-Jones preach when he was in Aberdeen, a young doctor having left medical practice, and he's there in, in Wales in this once-dead church that was beginning to come back to life again. And the, the, the skeptical reporter said as he, was, as he heard this man, this little man got up into the pulpit and began preaching. And it was as if he began to get bigger in the pulpit as he was preaching. And he said, Here's a man who has something to say because he feels forced to speak by a greater than human power. That's what, that's what this newspaper reporter came away with when he heard Lloyd-Jones preach. Here's a man with something to say because he feels forced to preach by a greater than human power. people say that about me in this ministry church? Would people say that about ministers in the average IRP church, in the PCA church? Would they feel, here are men who feel compelled to preach by a greater than human power? There are many weeks I get into this pulpit, and I know more want. In one sense, it was up to me. I would just say, Kyle, preach. I've had an awful week, you know. I've kicked the cat. I haven't even got a cat, you know. I've just, it's been a terrible week, and I've been grumpy and bad-tempered, and I feel just, oh, 
total imposter syndrome. And yet, when I get into the pulpit, into the, into the study, again and again, God reminds me it's, it's not about you and what you have to say. It's about the word that I have given you to say, and I have spoken, and how can you not preach? If that ever ceases to be the case, fire me, shoot me, get rid of me, whatever, have mercy upon yourselves. Life is too short. to listen to bad preaching. Defend the authority of his ministry. He defends the essence of his ministry, throughout the origin of his ministry. And finally, he defends the reality of his ministry. Verse 17, Therefore, thus says the Lord, God has pronounced this. It's very much like Jesus when he says to the… he says, your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisees are like, oh, how, can you, how can a man forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, okay, I mean, which is easier, to forgive your sins or to, say, pick up your bed and walk? And of course, the answer is forgive your sins, because I can say to you, your sins are forgiven you like a Catholic priest, but you, you can't see in heaven the book of deeds that contains the names and the thoughts and the words and the deeds, all the names and all the thoughts and all the words and all the deeds of every single human being. And I can't say, Bill Lindsay, your sins are forgiven you. And you can't see in the ledger, you know, William Lindsay, the 466th, thousandth, William Lindsay, down, you know, all of his sins being wiped out by the extra sketcher of God's mercy. You can't see it. I can say it, but has it happened? You don't know. But if I were to look down to Mr. Edison and Van, Van Erden and say, Eddie, your DNA is rewritten, well, then you would know immediately whether or not I had the authority to, to do anything that only God could do. And Jesus looks at, at the, the paralyzed man and says, your sins are forgiven you. Pick up your bed and walk. And immediately, life comes into him. And it's just like that here. But yet, not quite the same. Amos says, do you want to know whether my words are really the Word of God? And he's not, is it not, whenever I was in, in pediatric ER at the Royal Belfast Hospital for Sick Children, this, the queen of the gypsies came in one day, this kind of wizened woman with her stick, and <laughs> like a female version of the Dark Lord from Star Wars, and uh, not much prettier. And she walked in, and she was upset about one of her great-grandchildren who was a malingerer, I think. And the doctor wasn't having any of it. And she came out, and she's going, I curse you. I curse you by the moon, and I curse you by the stars. And this doctor's like walking out of the room backwards. This woman's going, I curse you by the moon, and I curse you by the stars, and I curse you by this. And it was very impressive. But her words didn't amount to hell of a beans, because she just was the queen of the gypsies. And she didn't have any authority. And she's being malicious and vindictive and spiteful. Scary, but, but, but no, no reality. But Amos here, he's not, step, he's not stooping down to petty vindictiveness. It, it, this, is a, this is an issue of, of am I truly a, a prophet of God? And what he says here is not from man. It's from God himself. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. 
and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. And your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. It's a sign that proves Amos's authority. There's a genius to it. How will people know that Amos's words are true? When Amaziah's wife becomes a harlot, and his sons and daughters are one by one butchered with an Assyrian sword, and Amaziah himself is carted off to Assyria to die in an unclean pagan land, and Israel are carted off with him as God wipes them off the face of the ground like one wipes a plate at the sink when it's dirty. The sign of God's Word. God always affirms His Word with signs. Until He gave the greatest sign of all, you remember in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The sign of resurrection, or turn forward to Hebrews. And the opening chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And the word drift away is used for a ship loosing its anchor. For since the message declared by angels, the Old Testament, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, see Amaziah, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How can I know if it's true? Well, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Christ, the greatest prophet of all, receives the great signs of the apostles and the signs of resurrection glory as the great imprimatur of God that God has spoken. In times past and in various ways, God has spoken to us, spoken to the fathers, in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He made the world. He opposed all things by the word of His power. He's the exact representation of His nature and the express image of His glory. And God has demonstrated that He came, He died, and He rose again. 
the great proof of the living and abiding Word of God. And so Amos chapter 7 is in the Bible to ask you, how do you respond to the Word of God? Do you find it's so easy, you know, for people to justify their rejection of Scripture because of the one who preaches it? As Jesus said about John the Baptist, He said to the fire, remember, we played a dirge for you, you did not mourn. And we played a dance for you, a jig for you, but you did not dance. And what He was saying is, He said, you remember, John the Baptist came, and he was this kind of weird guy, lived in the wilderness, beard, you know, long, itchy, scratchy dress, and he ate bugs. Like he was weird. And then Jesus comes, and he parties, they said, with homosexuals and prostitutes and tax collectors. And they said, no. And they find reasons to, to justify neglecting John the Baptist and Jesus. They neglected their words because they found fault with their person. If that can happen with John, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, and Jesus, the sinless Son of God, how much more with people like Kyle and I who are sinners, like Kyle and me, sorry, who are sinners, and have so many faults that would justify you rejecting our word. But it's never our word that you're rejecting. If we're being true to this book and to this word, it's the Word of God we are speaking. And you must hear it as the Word of God, because it is the Word of God. And, and blaming the man who preaches it is no defense when God is the one really doing the speaking. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Son. And we pray for ourselves, O God. We have the great propensity, Jesus says, of decorating the tombs of God's former prophets, Calvin and Spurgeon, these great men of old, and then digging the, the graves of God's present prophet. The Pharisees loved Amos and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but they killed God's Son and the apostles. And we pray for grace, O God, to have open ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We offer these prayers tonight, O Lord God, in Jesus' name. Give us, give our children eyes to see and ears to hear the words of Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen.